You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run, or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Strikes, work, slowdowns, and picket marches are a part of everyday life in Greece. Uh, If you looked at what's going on within their economy, uh, you know that every day, simple tasks such as just heading out the door to go to work or figuring out what stores you'd like to go to in town become a major issue. Uh, This has generated hundreds of websites being developed in Greece to alert people of what's going to be closed that particular day or where the latest protest march is, so you know to avoid the stores, which typically will sometimes close within minutes as a protest march is moving through the area. Give you an idea of how that looks, here's one typical reading on a Wednesday morning in May. Please be alert, 24-hour strike. Trains are not running. 24-hour strike, Siemens Association will not be doing anything with boating. Trolley cars on strike for 24 hours. Museums and all archaeological sites are closed as well for the next 24 hours. 
Now, it's one thing, I guess, when a nation or a country becomes crippled by work stoppages. But what happens when that becomes an epidemic among the church? When somehow we have lost our understanding, what does a servant look like? What does service as a follower of Christ look like? And so we've taken the opportunity to look at some glimpses in the Old Testament, but for this week and next Sunday, we're directing our attention to what's the New Testament teaching and understanding about serving the Lord. And so I'd like you to turn to the book of Philippians. And what we find in Philippians is a paradigm for serving Christ that is Christ-centered as well as relevant to every single believer. And so in Philippians chapter 2, this particular paradigm or model will have three parts to it. Uh, We'll be introduced to what does a servant's heart look like, then what is a servant's actions, and then finally, what is a servant's joy? And hopefully as we look at each of these three parts, we will walk away first with a better understanding of what serving Christ should look like, but then also be able to examine ourselves in light of that model. So as you look at Philippians chapter 2, we read verses 1 through 18, always desiring to place a text within its bigger, larger context. Uh, You're probably aware that Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, This is a particular church that he helped establish uh, during his missionary trips back recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, So he has a very invested interest in this church. Uh, It's also a church that this is about 11 to 12 years after its founding. So Paul is now sending a letter back to this church. Uh, And his letter has many different purposes to it. Uh, He is writing from prison. Uh, This is probably his first imprisonment in Rome. So he will be released at some point. Uh, But he's writing in response to the fact that the Philippian church has sent Epaphroditus to him. Epaphroditus brought a, a gift. We're not sure what. It could have been books. It could have been material goods, blankets, maybe even some financial means. Uh, to meet Paul's needs. Uh, But during that time, the letter tells us Epaphroditus gets very sick, almost dies. He's better now, so Paul wants to send him back. Uh, And also, in sending him back, let the church in Philippi know how much he appreciated their gift. Let them know what God is doing there. And also to encourage them to never let anything interrupt or stop your service for God. And so that's the heart of the letter of Philippians. But now look closely with me at Philippians 2 and that first part in this moving diagram of serving God, and that is a servant's heart. Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul has an interesting line of argument here based on this if-then clause. So if this is true then there should be this result that follows. So notice in, in verse, verses 1 and 2, I will read the if part, and I'll rely on you to fill in what Paul's saying, if you have this. So notice beginning at verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any from his love, if any 
with the Spirit, if any, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. This if-then clausing is four incentives Paul puts out there. He says, if these incentives are true, then you should have a desire, a heart to serve God. And so as you read them, Paul's not saying this as if he's not certain if these are true. Because notice how the verse began in verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. There is a certainty, a reality here that as believers, they are united in Christ. They are in union with Christ. So therefore, they do have encouragement. They do have comfort. They do have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And they do have tenderness and compassion. And you'll see throughout this whole letter, there's little glimpses of others who are serving Christ faithfully that would evidence these four incentives. They are there in Christ Jesus. So we have Paul showing us here, what does a true servant's heart look like? In other words, all of these are a present reality because of our union with Christ. So they're there, whether or not they are clearly displayed or demonstrated is often the issue I think we wrestle with. Just as the book of Chronicles talked about Josiah's heart. And yet we quickly realize, if you read a little further about Josiah, a tremendous reforms that take place under him spiritually, finds the book of the law, he repents himself over it, he says, we've got we've to restore this, we've neglected it, we've disobeyed it. But even Josiah's heart, towards the end of his reign, turned away from God. And so as you read these words, Paul's concerned, not just that they right now respond in his absence in obedience. But even more so, they continue to respond in a servant's heart in his absence. Not just when he's there, but when he's removed from them, as he is presently in writing this letter, concerned about the state of their heart. Now you may have noticed as you listen to these verses read, Paul does not use the word heart. But he uses another equivalent term throughout this letter that would refer to the same aspect, your deepest affections, emotions, the center of your being. And it's the phrase to be like-minded. And so you see in verse 2, he says, being by being like-minded. Unfolds that a little bit more. Being like-minded is having the same love, being one in spirit, and in purpose. And so you notice there our translators have rendered spirit lowercase uh, to kind of point you in the right direction here. This is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but is actually the root for our word symphony, which, which speaks of a complete unity among them. So they are like-minded because they are united in Christ. So when we speak of loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we could also say that we somehow 
have the mind of Christ. Going down a little further in Philippians 2, notice verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That term consider is not the same exact word, but it's a derivative of that pointing to count or think of others over yourselves. So we've had two examples here where he uses this phrase to be like-minded, to think, to consider, which reveals a servant's heart. Going down to verse 5, even more directly, he says, your attitude, or as some translations put it, your mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And this is not a suggestion, but he's saying, have this mind in you. And it all goes back to how is that mind in us because we have been united in Christ. So this concept and doctrine of our union in Christ translates into how we can speak of our union with one another, how we may be like-minded. These are marks that speak of a servant's heart. And so, as we said, although Paul does not refer in this letter specifically to the heart, his references to mind being like-minded considering, he does 11 different times, saying this is what a, the heart of a servant looks like. Now, interesting, because our concept typically, if I said, well, are you serving in the church, you might think, well, do I hold an office? Uh, you might think of tasks you've done, like, well, we had the work day last Sunday, so yeah, I was doing this, this, and this. Notice in this description, there's nothing said here about tasks. And maybe we miss something where we just want to immediately respond with, well, these are the, the tasks I do. Not that that's not evidence, hopefully, of genuine service, but if you want to talk about service of God, it begins with the heart. And so Paul reminds the Philippian believers and you and me, let's look at a servant's heart. Because the task will change, but the servant's heart is consistent. That's what we want to focus on first and get our bearings on. So I've referenced the fact that here you have this mention of being like-minded. You should have the same mind as Christ. But what does it mean to have the mind of Christ. Clearly, Christ's ministry, his work, unique. There's only one Son of God. Now, we may refer to ourselves, and correctly so, as believers, as being sons and daughters of God, but that's through adoption, not through our innate nature. But what does it mean to have the mind of Christ, to think like Christ about others, about our relationship with the Lord, about serving him. Well, if you would look with me at John chapter 10, I think we have an answer that Jesus himself provides here in one particular scene. And that is in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about how he is the good shepherd and referencing the relationship between a shepherd and his flock. And if we listen carefully to verses 1 through 5, we're, we're brought into, oh, this is what the mind of Christ 
must include. He says, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of a sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now you have here a reminder of three specific qualities that go with having a mind of Christ. If he is our shepherd and we are his sheep, what does that mean? Well, you notice in verse 3, we listen to his voice. We're not just coming to God in prayer saying, here's what I need this week. We, we listen to his voice. But we don't just listen to his voice. We listen and then we follow his voice. And we don't just listen and follow, but we know his voice. We, we recognize it. And because we recognize his voice, there are other voices that we turn away from. What a, what a picture to us is this is the mind of Christ. This is what should mark each of us because we are united in Christ. Not just on Sunday morning when the message is on and we have our Bibles open or our tablets open that we listen to God then and we feel like we hear him and he's present with us. But, but what's going on all week in us? Do we have a servant's heart where we're listening to him, where we're following him, where, where we know his voice and his voice is so loud that it pushes other voices that we hear in our world out away from us? Many of you have seen people walking around with earbuds in. Latest trend is actually to have earbuds in, but not even listening anything because you want to send a message to people. I just don't want to talk. I'm in my own world. I'm doing my own thing. Just don't bother me. I wonder sometimes if we're kind of like that with God. We're, we're busy with our own lives. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to him when, when we have a need, when there's something that we want from him. But that's not a servant's heart, just as the glimpse and picture here of a true shepherd is one who cares for his sheep. So between the words of Paul and the words of Jesus, complete continuity here of what a servant's heart looks like. But I want us to go back to Philippians chapter 2, because Paul not only reminds us of what a servant's heart is, but clearly, what, what marks a servant's actions? What, what does a servant look like in terms of outwardly? And so he turns our attention in really verses 6 through 11. Uh, you recognize this great Christ hymn. Uh, and this may have even been part of an early kind of Christian hymn. Uh, a powerful statement on Christology, the nature of Christ. 
that as Tony prayed, you know, we, we understand this correctly. You know, when Christ came and took on flesh, he remained what he was and became what he had not been. So it's, it's not subtraction. He wasn't losing anything. Uh, as John Murray would say, it is addition. He, he added to his divine nature a fully human nature and yet was without sin. But it's interesting that as powerful as this passage is, it's in between Paul's teaching about servanthood. In other words, he draws this passage out to illustrate this is what a servant looks like. With the understanding, Jesus Christ is one and only. He is unique. But somehow as his servants, there's a common link here between how he acted and how we should act and conduct ourselves. And so if you look closely just at verses 6 through 8, we see here the humiliation of Christ. Pictured for us in his incarnation, his crucifixion, his condescending love that he came and died for us while we were yet sinners. Now, I want you to think for a moment, who, who needs really to hear that message? And Paul's writing to a church. So his assumption is here, yeah, this is a great message for unsaved people to hear. Definitely, that's the gospel. But in this letter, he's more speaking to believers. Why, why would believers need to be reminded of the humiliation of Christ, of a love that condescends and puts others before themselves? Or could it be part of our work stoppage in the church is we do put ourselves first. And maybe sometimes we even approach worship from the standpoint, it's all about me. What do I get out of the service? How did it help me? Rather than thinking, you know what, worship is about directing your attention to God. And leaving worship not so much saying, how do I feel right now? But, but what is it God is asking me to do? What areas in my life are not as obedient as they should be if I am to have a servant's heart? And I can't help but think when I ask this question, who needs to hear that? On the one hand, all of us should be saying, I do. I need to be reminded. Because often the reasons I don't serve is it's about me. I'm not thinking of how it impacts others. I'm not thinking of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm clearly not thinking of Jesus Christ, the complete servant of the Lord. But I'd add to that list two other people Paul mentions by name. Look at Philippians 4. And you just have to love how Paul, in his love for the church, does not hesitate at times to call people out in love, but to yet mention them. And so if you look with me at Philippians 4, notice verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I plead with Eudia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, local yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, 
along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Is Paul implying that these two women are at some kind of odds and what they need to remember is the humiliation of Jesus Christ? That this would change their relationship with one another in the body of Christ if they thought and looked at a servant's actions. Now, Paul's not saying they're not Christians. He speaks about how in the past they seem to have really worked with him in the gospel. But something has happened where Paul, in a sense, you could say, I know they're believers, but I don't see them acting like believers. I don't see it in their actions. And so remind them of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. What would it do on the level of our own relationships, not just in this church, but in the body of Christ throughout the community, if you had Christians actually applying this passage, admitting when they are wrong, confessing to someone that they have hurt them, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally, humbling themselves. Richard Sibbs is one of my favorite Puritans. Uh, he was known as the heavenly doctor, just had a very sweet kind of demeanor. Uh, but, but I like what he said about humility. He said, humility is something that we must labor to maintain. We must labor to maintain humility. Why? Because by nature, we are selfish. We are prideful. We are arrogant. We will put our own needs before one another even in the body of Christ. So we want to know what a servant should look like, a servant's actions. Consider the humility of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we've stressed Jesus was unique. So there's going to be many different ways in terms of his work that we were never called to mimic. But where Paul's going with this is, the uniqueness of Christ also means that he should be reflected in the lives of those who follow him. So if we're saying we're followers of Christ, we are united in him, then there's a reflection, a, a family resemblance that should be evident. And you see this back in Philippians 2, but verses 14 through 16. Because remember, when Paul's writing here, he stops at verse 5 to say your attitude should be that of Christ. Then he takes a little break and says, here's an illustration. Christ, what he did. Then in verse 12, he comes back to where he left off in verse 5 in exhorting them, instructing them. But note verses 14 through 16. You want to know what a servant's heart looks like in action? Well, here it is. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Serve not just by doing things. Serve by doing things in the right attitude. So if I look for an opportunity to announce to everyone somehow what I've done this week in service to God, that is not serving in the right attitude. If I'm looking for you to pat me on the back, to somehow tell me what a good Christian I am by me telling you what I've done, then it's worthless service. 
It's meaningless. I made it all about me, not about Christ. But then he goes on in that verses 14 and following. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. So how should Christ be reflected in us? We're, we're pleasing sacrifices. That, that we're pure and blameless, not in terms of we're, we're sinless now because we know Christ, but Christ is continually refining us. Our motives for serving as we grow in Christ should become more and more sincere, compassionate, other-centered. He also says we will shine as like stars in the universe. says we live in a crooked and perverse world. None of us need convincing of that. Just look at the news. What we need to be reminded of is in that world, a servant's actions stand out. We're like lights in a dark place. But he also includes there in verse 16, all of this is as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Hold out the word of God or word of life means to, to cling to it, to have our attention fixed on it. So a servant's actions are based on a servant's heart, which is driven by a seriousness and an appetite for the word of God. And Paul peppers Philippians with examples of a servant's actions. He mentions Timothy. He says, I've got, I've got nobody like Timothy who, who doesn't think of himself. He thinks of others. And he mentions this guy, as I said earlier, Epaphroditus. He says, you know, you, you sent him to me and he, he almost died. Maybe implying that he may have picked up some kind of disease on the trip to see Paul. And Paul's sending him back. He says, guys like this, you, you better honor. You, you need to esteem them as servants of God. Reflections of the character of Christ. Paul includes himself. Says how he is like a sacrifice. Willingly poured out. And then he even commends and says, you know what, you Philippian believers, you're examples and reflections of Christ. And kind of says to them in, in Philippians 4, when I was starting out, nobody supported me but you. You sent me gifts. You've been there in my ministry. What, what a picture of, of what a servant's actions look like so so far we've talked about a servant's heart a servant's actions and then we come to a servant's joy because paul is not naive this is difficult work to be a servant of god but you see both in verse one because we're united in christ this is the source of our joy and so you see in verse 16, in the last part of that verse that I read, Paul talks about the future rewards that will make it all worth it. And he's both challenging them 
but comforting himself when he says, I'm looking for that day of Christ when I'll be able to say, I did not run or labor in vain. What Paul's saying is, on that day, the true fruit of my service will be acknowledged. I will see it. And in that seeing, I trust I will see the Philippian believers who have remained firm and steadfast, reminding me that I didn't waste my labors. I didn't waste my time teaching you the whole counsel of God. Now, why would Paul say that? I think there were critics who probably said, Paul, you're wasting your time on some of these people. You've given up a lucrative professional career to do what? Travel around and tell people about Jesus? That's it? Where's your 401k? And yet Paul puts before him this future reward that awaits every true servant of God. But there's also a present joy in serving Christ because Paul is not a defeated servant of God. He's not writing this and saying, well, I'm discouraged, but, you know, when, when I die, then, then it will all be worth it. Now, he knows it will be worth it on that day. But you notice what he says in verses 17 through 19. He writes, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. It's hard work. And Paul says, you know what? I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I rejoice with all of you, saying, you Philippians who are, know what I'm talking about, you're also rejoicing in the present struggles of being a servant of God. And says, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Need I remind you one more time, Paul's in prison while he's writing this. And yet that does not damper the confidence he has in a servant's true joy. Well, it sort of brings us to a question that I would hope is running through your mind, because it runs through mine as I read this passage, and that is, this all sounds great, but I don't feel that way. I'm tired of serving. Or I don't have a servant's heart. I just don't. I, I think more of myself. I guess that's just the kind of person I am. But Paul reminds us of something. If you're thinking that way, Paul says you're exactly right. You cannot have a servant's heart. You cannot display a servant's actions. And you will never experience a servant's joy unless God is working in you and through you. And that's where verses 12 and 13 remind us. When he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Here you have the answer. You cannot do this 
And Paul's not saying, you need to try harder this week. He's saying, what you need to do is allow and trust to work out in your life what God has already put there and is working in you. So there is a responsibility, but the responsibility is to yield to the fact that you are united in Christ. Therefore, God is at work in you and through you. As bad as a work stoppage, a strike is in another country, what's even worse is when that captivates and takes over in the Christian life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this model for us of what Christian service should genuinely look like and how appropriate that we move from this text to the Lord's Supper where we have before us the reminder of Christ's humiliation followed by his exaltation which is the assurance of the joy that is ours in Christ as we respond in serving you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.